Hello again, everyone, and welcome back to Octopulse, our Detroit News, Detroit Red Wings podcast. I'm Mark Faulkner, Detroit News Assistant Sports Editor, along with Ted Colfin, our Red Wings beat reporter. Later in the podcast, we'll hear from Hockey Hall of Famer Pat LaFontaine, who will pay tribute to his former CompuWare coach, Riel Turcotte, who passed away last month at age 79. That story was in Tuesday's paper, and you can find it online at DetroitNews.com. But first, Ted, let's take a look at a story that you wrote about the Red Wings and the new collective bargaining agreement and why General Manager Steve Iserman is ideally suited to add players that other teams can't afford. The new CBA and the return to play agreement Ted, you've covered work stoppages in 2004, 2012, different times, different circumstances, but this was done relatively quickly in these uncertain times. Did it surprise you? Uh, somewhat, Mark, but I guess it you know, speaks to the level of tranquility out there right now, and I think both sides obviously wanted to get something done. And it's nice to know that we will have labor peace for, what is it, I think five or six years here mm -hmm. going forward. Um, I, the wings are well positioned. Whether they take advantage of it, well, we'll have to wait and see. But with the salary cap stagnant here for a good couple years, you're going to see some teams really up against it. It's the teams that you would think, the teams that are the contenders, the Tampas, Pittsburgh, St. Louis, I believe Toronto's definitely in that category. They're going to need to lop off some salary. I mean, there's just no two ways around it. I don't see how the, otherwise they're going to be able to exist with the, the present rosters. They will have to make way with – they're going to have to lop off some, you know, fairly high-priced veterans. And, and in that vein, yeah, the Wings should be able – are able to add some salary if they so desired there probably will be some good players on the market there that, mm -hmm. you know, probably be better than you would see on the free agent market this summer. So it's something definitely to keep an eye on. Well, let's begin and let's really focus then on one team, Iserman's former team, the Lightning. It was a year ago at this time, the Lightning were coming off that 62-win season, and they were about to be swept by the Blue Jackets. And Iserman and assistant GM Julian Brisebois looked at each other and knew they would never win a Stanley Cup together in Tampa Bay. Now, last year, Eisenman acquired a player that he drafted in Tampa Bay, Adam Ernie, for a fourth-round pick. And, Ted, you identified three or four players uh, who could be available. Andre Pilat, two more years left, career-high 17 goals. Probably unlikely he would be a player that Breezeball would want to move he makes $5.3 million. The next two players were undrafted players, five foot nine, Yanni Gord. He's making $5.1 for five more years. And then there's that Tyler quite, Johnson. That is quite the generous contract, I tell you. When I saw that one, that is one that really stood out. That's going to be an albatross for them for a long time. Now, would Steve Eisenman be interested in Gord, a five foot nine center? Again, four years in the minors. He's got this long contract. What are your thoughts about Yanni Gord? Because another player just like him is Tyler Johnson, who Red Wing fans remember in the playoffs. He's been a Red Wings killer in the postseason. 
Johnson has 51 career points in 68 playoff games. He makes five million a year, four more years left. He's five foot eight. So between those two players, Ted, Gord and Johnson, do you think Steve Eisenman would have a preference there if uh, it's possible the Lightning win the Cup and these players have a lot more value too? Yes. Another thing is, Mark, I mean, Eisenman's been very adamant about how he's not going to want to be tied into having salary cap problems going forward. He doesn't want to, he doesn't want any long-term big money deals. At least he said so in free, as far in terms of free agency. Mm-hmm. So you, you wonder if, you know, Tyler Johnson, four more years at that type of money. Right. And he's pushing 30. I'm pretty sure he's in that 28 to 31 range, not having a good season thus far. I mean, we'll see what happens in the playoffs, but in one vein, sure. I mean, you, you, they could definitely add a guy like him or a Gertie who, like we said before, I mean, that was just, a, you wonder what Brisbane was thinking there. That was a very generous contract for a very unproven player. But, I mean, yeah, the Wings, if they so desire, they'll be in position to get one of those guys or an Alex Kalorn mm-hmm. who's having a career year this year. But, again, you know, good player in Tampa. You wonder, would he be a, would he be a good fit here or not with not – with very much less talent around here than he doesn't have at, he does have in Tampa, but yeah, they would be in position to add our, the, the team that really that I'd like to keep an eye on, I think is Pittsburgh with those two goalies. I mean, mm-hmm. obviously the Red Wings will need a goaltending, you know, they'll need goaltending in the soft season. Either one of those two, Matt Murray, who's won two Stanley cups for the Penguins or the young Tristan Jerry. I mean, I think either one of those two would look good in a Red Wings uniform and probably wouldn't have to give up a heck of a lot to get them because of the salary cap and all. That is interesting too, Ted, about the goaltending. That's right. So you're probably not going to get um, I think they'd go more for a goal. Yeah, I yeah. think they'd more gold, go more toward a goaltending than they had another forward. But, I mean, those options are going to be available. Yeah. And ironically, Matt Murray, 2012, the Wings had a chance to take him. There were seven goalies off the board, including Eisenman, who took Vasilevsky 19th overall in the first round. And the Wings had a choice between Matt Murray, Frederick Anderson with Frolunda, really good goalie, Matt Murray in the Sioux, and Jake Patterson in Saginaw. And the Wings took Patterson, and then a couple of picks later, the Penguins took Murray, and he won those two Stanley Cups. So, yes, that might be a player that Jimmy Rutherford says, I, I might move him and, and stick with uh, with Tristan Jerry. Jerry. Yeah, Jerry had a very good year this year, too. Yeah. We'll see what that's going to be interesting, an interesting team to watch in the playoffs here, which direction they'll go with. Will they go with to Jerry or Murray? But that's something we can talk about next week. But, yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. It's unlikely they'll keep both of them, so one of them's going to have to go. And Ted, just one final thought about the Lightning, looking at their uh, pay grade and how they align the, um, their salaries. Kucherov's at 9.5, Stamkos 8.5, Braden Point 6.75, Victor Hedman at only 7.8. They've got to sign Sorelli, Sergachev. Uh, they have good deals for Coleman and Goodrow. And Vasilevsky goes from 3.5 to 9.5 next year. So, so my question would be, too, when Steve Eisenman now starts to slot players um, behind Dylan Larkin, who makes like $6.5 million, 
it's interesting, isn't it, down the road? This is what the wings, ideally, the position they want to be in. Yeah. yeah, Mark, it's a long, they're a long way from that, though, my friend. They are a <laughs> long way from that. Yeah, no kidding. After they, don't, they don't have to worry about that problem for a long time. But it will be interesting to see how much of this, how big of a slice of the pie they give to both Anthony Mantha and Tyler Bertuzzi this year. Those are Mantha and specifically, I mean, that's going to be an interesting negotiation. I mean, it'll be, I don't know, he could command some pretty good money. I mean, his mm-hmm. stats are comparable to some of the younger stars around the league. So that will be an interesting contract negotiation to watch. Yeah, and a lot of people, Ted, are wondering who is going to sign first in this new market with the Caps sort of uh, stagnant over the first few years. Will Mantha make as much as he would normally make, $8 million or more, or will he be down just above Dylan Larkin as well? So I think a lot of teams are waiting to see what happens first. So right, that, right. that wraps up the first part of our podcast. Let's go now to our interview with Pat LaFontaine. Joining us now is Pat LaFontaine, a hockey Hall of Famer who played 15 years in the NHL with the New York Islanders, Buffalo Sabres, and New York Rangers. 865 career games, 468 goals, 1,013 points before post-concussion syndrome forced your retirement at age 34. Pat, at age 16, you played here in Michigan with the 1981-82 Detroit CompuWare team coached by Riel Turcotte, who was a pioneer in developing hockey schools hockey skills as well, like stick handling and playing with and without the puck. In fact, you said, Pat, he opened the doors for a lot of young American hockey players, especially after the Miracle on Ice Olympic team in 1980. What did Riel Turcotte mean to your career? Well, at first, Mark, thanks for having me. And, you know, Riel was just, um, you know, he he was uh, a legend in the area. Um, he impacted so many young players' uh, hockey careers, including my myself and mm-hmm. my brother. And, um, you know, that year we played together. He was the coach with my dad, uh, the comp- probably really the first CompuWare team because Pete Carmanis was the manager. And Pete's son, Pete Jr., played on that team. We had, I think, seven players from that midget team get drafted in the pros, and four ended up playing. Al uh, Afraidy was one of them. Obviously, Alfie Turcotte, uh, Real's son, um, Jeff Rolichek, myself, were all drafted pros. And then I believe another four guys played D1. Um, mm-hmm. It was a special team. But, but Raul was, you know, uh, you know, such a presence at teaching skills, the skills of the game, especially stick handling, um, the Gordie Howe move, the, the, <laughs> the, the, the different moves. that. Um, and then we all worked on the hockey schools in the summer together. Um, you know, some of my greatest childhood memories uh, were, were working the hockey schools, playing hockey, um, and that, that, that midget team um, with Alfie and, and his dad, Ral, um, and my dad coaching. And we were, we were ended up, I think it was two centermen and three lines, and we would alternate centers. Um, and it was, just, it was just an amazing, amazing team. But it was, uh, it was all the years leading up to that team, you know, the hockey schools and the skills. And Raoul, you know, Raoul had a background, uh, you know, with his French-Canadian background and his years of playing hockey. Mm-hmm. Uh, my dad played hockey for a little while, but, uh, you know, Raoul, Raoul brought that, um, that expertise. You know, I, I don't think I ever remembered him not excited to see <laughs> or be on the ice. He had this huge smile he lit up a room and he you know it was just just 
full of passion. And it, it resonated with all of us. And uh, he made learning hockey fun. Uh, he made teaching the game fun. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, when, when, when you're playing this game, um, and there's so many things about the game um, that you look back at, even when you re- retire and, and let go, the game lives on inside of you long afterwards. So the, the life skills, the relationships, the character development, and um, if you're having a positive experience at every age, which is age-appropriate um, experience, yeah. uh, you just you develop an emotional connection. And and Ral had a way of making the game fun. Um, I I actually use the term "rapid and cheese" because uh, <laughs> if you give a dog a if you give a dog a pill, he'll spit it out. But if you wrap it in cheese, he doesn't even know he ate it. <laughs> and so if you're if you're making it fun. And then you're you're working hard, but you're enjoying what you're doing, and you're having a positive experience. You 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 know, an hour later, you're sweating and you're wiped out. And you're like, wow, that was amazing. And um and and you just don't, you don't even know you kind of jokingly ate the pill and did all the hard work and yeah, sacrifice yeah. for the game. So Rao had a way about him, and uh, I think what was exciting about that 1980 81 Copyware Midget team. That won the uh, that actually we won a ton of tournaments. We we ended up playing against Chicago in the final game. We were about seventy nine and two. Um, we um, we we had a lot of fun, and my dad and, and Raul were a good balance. And then, you know, then Pete Carmanos was our manager. I mean, who would have thought years later um, what what transpired from that one team and that coaching? But but Raul just did a tremendous job. Super super smart um, in the hockey um, hockey sense. And and then to the full package was just teaching the skills sure. of the game, and, yeah. and and it impacted all of us. You mentioned Al Iafredi earlier. I remember watching Iafredi back in '81 or '82 in warmup. He won the hardest shot five times in the NHL skills competition. He was pounding the puck off the boards in warmup, and I was there with a former NHL linesman, Bill Clements, who said, "Mark, you got to see this team." And when he saw Iafredi with that 100-mile-an-hour slap shot going off the board, he goes, I think he's doing that on purpose, scaring the other team. And, you know, <laughs> at, that's, that's a memory that I remember. Um, I also remember, Pat, meeting Riel Turcott when CompuWare and Peter Carmano spot the Windsor Spitfires in the early 80s. And you're right. He was this whirlwind of ideas, energy, so passionate about developing skills. And one time... He talked about the importance of the lower hand on your stick, moving that lower hand all the time, depending on the circumstances. I didn't know what he meant, and I'm sure there wasn't anything specific that he taught you other than Alfie said that sometimes his dad would see skaters like skate for 20 minutes in circles without the puck. Alfie said his dad wanted you guys to touch the puck. So what what specifically do you think he might have taught you guys that – at the time, it wasn't revolutionary, but it was certainly an emphasis on skill development. Well, yeah, I, it, and it's interesting. You talked about his passion and his creativity and his excitement. Yeah. Um, you know, there's very few people in the world, you could say, that never, you know, never have a bad word to say about somebody. And, and Rao was that one of those guys. He, he was a gentleman, and um, everybody he met, he, he – introduced himself with passion and kindness and uh never had a bad word to say and 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 everybody just loved ralph he just had a way about him and so um i think what made ralph special was his communication skills and his ability to to break down 
the moves on the stick handling to break down the plays on the ice and to show you that you just can't do this. You need to do this step first, then you need to do this step, and then you need to pull the puck over to as wide as you can go. And the reason why he would show you, and so he would break down everything, and then it was, okay, learn how to do this first, push the puck forward, then slide it back, then slide it over, and as you're sliding it over, yeah. you know, spread your legs and push with this side and then lean into so the guy can't, you know, you can protect the puck. And so it was, it was basically simulating what happens in a quick second. He would break down in four different or five different spots and areas. And then you would just practice each one of those. And then seamlessly after you did it, you know, in repetition, right. it, became, it became natural. And so I think what Raul was really good at teaching was really simplifying it, breaking it down, working on the individual moves that then collectively made into this one move. And so when you see players do something unique, you know, it, it's, it's a lot of repetition, a lot of practice, a lot of breaking down, but it looks like it's one move. And Raul was able to kind of, you know, break that down. And I, I think, you know, that's one of the things that I remember most people couldn't understand and coach and teach that. And then the other thing is, is if you really think about a game. Sure. We were doing, you know, statistics um, on how many times a player actually touches, how many seconds. It's not uncommon in a 60-minute game that a player might have the puck in their control for – 20 seconds no longer than a minute for the whole game sure if you really think about it because you're you're moving the puck you're passing the puck you stick out how many times do you actually have that puck and then when you have that puck on your stick it's critical because it kind of controls the dictates what's going to happen next and so what what Raul would do is it it had to become second nature you know and learning how to stick handle with your head up and so the the, the thing is, is is a lot of players you know would always be looking down Sure. And it's yeah. something my dad always taught was, you know, work on your weaknesses. And it was natural to look down because it, it was second. It didn't feel second nature to stick handle. Raul made it. And my dad, by teaching the weaknesses, Raul made it so that it just becomes so natural having the puck on your stick that everything else, you could see the play, you could make smarter reads, you could make better passes. And it became just second nature. And I think, the repetition of practice and practice and breaking down plays, it, it sounds simple, but yeah, it, right. it, it translated into skills and development over a period of time. I mean, look at the players where the players ended up and evolved to. So, you know, we're very fortunate. And I know Alfie and I spoke about this, you know, when, it's, when Ralph passed away, you know, how we were all impacted by his genius and his love of the sport and how he was able to teach us so much. Alfie also said that some people would criticize his dad saying he produced a bunch of puck hogs because you guys had the puck all the time, but there was a lot of passing. I know that final year, or at least in 79 games, you had 175 goals, 149 assists, 324 points. You said you had two centers and you guys were like rotating and things. Was there any, ever any downside? Like, to, to what he was teaching you guys? Was there ever any pushback? Because here was this American team right after, you know, the um, Olympic medal, as I mentioned off the top, that was, was playing as well as Canadian teams. And at, at the time, I think, Pat, it, it was sort of, it was a new wave of, of hockey being taught over, over here in the States. I would say to you that that, that team was really kind of a, um, 
a stepping stone, maybe even a foundation for a lot of teams and players to come. Because what happened was, you know, we had heard things about Canada and junior hockey and we had heard things about college. And, you know, I was very fortunate to play local up till I was 15. I mean, I played right there at Waterford uh, Lakeland Arena. You know, I played for sponsored teams, Richardson's Farm Dairy, who owned the rink at the time. And then, you know, we, we had Audubon Motors. Right? One of my uncles was involved with that, them. And, and then we, we, we had Kentucky Fried Chicken. So I played all these local teams. And then I really didn't play real travel teams outside of the local area until I was 16. And, you know, that team started out 60 and up. And the talent and the hard work and the skating and the passing and all of it kind of just gelled together. And we would go in and play teams, and it, it just clicked. I mean, it wasn't uncommon. We, we had the two centermen, Alfie and myself, rotating with three different lines. And uh, I believe we just had six set of defensemen, and we had great goaltending. And, um, and we ended up going up into Canada and started playing in these tournaments. And by the end of the tournament, the, the, the stands were packed. <laughs> who are these who are these americans and and it was ironic was you know we we followed right after the 1980 olympic team so here it was that you know this great olympics that opened the door for so many young boys and girls that you know started to dream bigger uh within within hockey and um then comes this you know uh midget triple a compuware team that's just you know winning all these tournaments and and just really making a name for itself and really between the Olympics kind of opening the doors and putting the spotlight and that midget team that just, you know, started creating a lot of buzz. And then obviously, you know, seven kids from that team get drafted into the pros that was unheard of from a midget hockey team in the United States. So, so if you look at the architect and the coaching between Ral and my father and, and uh, Pete Carmanis, it's not surprising the success that team had that, you know, then players went on to play pro, you know, um, you know, what was great was, you know, Alfie's dad stuck, stuck in the grassroots, stuck with right. the kids and, and worked the hockey schools and just continued to teach the grassroots level and the next generation. And I give him so much credit because all the other players, and then here's Pete Carmanos who went on, Bart, Bart bought the Hartford franchise, moved it to Carolina, won a Stanley cup. And so, you know, it, it's, it really stems, and people ask me, you know, what what gave you the confidence then to go to play junior and Olympics and then go on to play pro? The foundation of that team, you know, I played up with my brother. My brother and I were very fortunate. We played together our whole careers, and then he was older for the that midget team. I ended up playing the first year at my age level, and um, that team – gave a lot of players tremendous confidence to believe and and dream bigger and the confidence to to go to those next levels and so the architects of that were were really real turcott my dad Turcot, and Pete sure. Romanos and yeah. and we you know you look back as young players and uh, i think a lot of people do this in their lifetime and and there are and i always say there are three mentors in your life there's your parents there's your coaches and there's your teachers and and they have major impacts on your life and your trajectory of confidence and where you go and, um, and the life skills and the, the character development. And we, you know, Alfie and I reminisced, uh, you know, when his dad had passed that, you know, how blessed and how fortunate we were and anybody who came across, you know, Ral during that time and learned. And then the hockey schools alone, my brother went on, we all worked them and, 
he went on to do his school and you know so you just spread the word and you spread the talent and the, and the learning and the teaching to create you know more players but i think the most important thing was really the character development the life skills that we learned from you know the mentoring and from those experiences pat two final questions how much did you uh, know about riel's hockey background in the 1950s nhl teams owned your rights so he was claimed by montreal like at age 14 he played for the hall ottawa juniors eventually turned down a contract alfie said for 12,000 when he could make 14,000 teaching he coached a team called the lansing lancers in the ihl he studied math at michigan state played senior hockey back in montreal Alfie said when they went out to Nanaimo, his dad sold him to Portland for $25,000 and four players. And he said his mom was really upset that, you know, <laughs> Rian would sell him to pay bills with Nanaimo. So that's kind of funny stuff. But did you know much about this, this gentleman who had such a, a profound effect on so many people's lives? Yeah, you know, I did. I didn't mo- uh, know most of that. And I, and I did forget, forget to mention that he did, as Alfie was evolving, he did go on and do coaching at a little bit higher levels and spent most of his career and most of his time kind of at the grassroots and hockey school and teaching. But during sure. Alfie's time, my brother played with them in Nanaimo when Raul was out there coaching. <laughs> so we have a, we have a strong connection and that's something I'm sure he, he can share with you. Um, but, but here's another irony, how our, our careers had passed, had, had our, our career paths had crossed that, I, we played on that midget team. I went up to Verdun and played in Montreal. And then Alfie went on and played in Nanaimo. And that was a strategic deal that his dad made because Alfie then went to the Memorial Cup with Portland and Cam Neely. Um, and Verdun, we won the, the President's Cup in the Quebec League. And we ended up meeting in Portland against each other, playing junior hockey in the Portland Winterhawks, won the Memorial Cup that year. And, uh, you know, I talked to Cam about it a lot, but Alfie was there. Uh, I believe it was Randy Heath. They had, they had a super team. Uh, I, and I, Oshawa was there, and it was Lethbridge, I believe, the four teams. But you're talking about 1982-83. And so it, wasn't only, it was only a year later that we met, you know, after playing our midget careers. Um, but that was a strategic, smart deal that his dad was able to get him. <laughs> Portland, who was going to the Memorial <laughs> Cup, and they won it. Um, and, and that's the kind of things, you know, dads did. Listen, they, they sacrificed and, and you want to give your kids, you know, everything and the tools to kind of go forward. Um, but, but Raul did that with everybody. Um, and, and, you know, Elfie had some great professional experiences drafted by Montreal um, and, and, and played. I mean, you just had to look at Elfie one time, come up the ice, and you knew he was a special player. And, and Raul had so much to do with that. And, and Jeff was is a tremendous player also. Mm-hmm. And they all followed kind of in their footsteps. And here you are now. What a great thing to watch his grandson get drafted. I was so happy to know and see him there when he saw his grandson, Alex, get drafted by L.A. So um, it came full circle. And, and you know, he's, he, he was an amazing man who gave back to so many. Uh, but I know, I know, you know, for somebody who probably – you know, talked about stick handling and they called you, you mentioned the word puck hogs, but, but at the end of the day, Raul wasn't about the stick. He was about the stick hand, but he wasn't about so much the, the scoring. He was about the assist because in, in, in oh. the game of life, it's not about scoring goals. It's about assists. He assisted and so many players and, and impacted 
so many players and to see probably it go to a third generation and his grandson um, before he passed had to be extremely um, meaningful for him after all he's you know done for the game of hockey. And finally, uh, Pat, I asked Alfie if he was surprised that his dad's death didn't receive more media attention. And I said, you know, your dad really wasn't quiet or reserved. He goes, oh, no. He said he was the boss and he was firm but fair. And he said he built all those hockey schools and he had to standardize the quality of the coaching, the rules and regulations. And Alfie said it was kind of fitting at the end of the obit, the last line said, practice your moves 10 minutes a day. So is there a reason why perhaps that um, his, his death, perhaps maybe a lot of people didn't know about it or do you have any thoughts on that at all? Honestly, Mark, I, yeah. I think it was, it, it, I think it was the time. I think we were going through extremely scary times with what's happened in our world with COVID and, and um, um, I, I think Raul, was very humble. Mm -hmm. um, Raul was one that would rather take a back seat and, you know, um, yeah, like I said, pass the puck and watch somebody else score their goals. And, and Raul probably took, he took so much more enjoyment out of watching all of the players that he had been a part of go on and become successful, not only on the ice, but off the ice. So I, I, I think that if you look back to Probably, you know, he, he, he has so many great, great uh, parts to his legacy. The thing that I'll remember the most, if you had to say the foremost skill teaching early on, uh, mm -hmm. especially stick handling, you know, he would be the Mount Rushmore of, of that. Of, uh, nowadays, parents and, you know, whether it's in any sport, particular hockey, they're hiring, you know, skill teaching coaches. Rao was way ahead of his time. He started it. He implemented sure. really the skill set teaching. And, and uh, you know, he, he left so much behind as far as how he impacted the game. But I would say to, to, to put one spotlight on outside of the person and the man he was and uh, the gentleman that he was, um, I really didn't understand the artistic handling and the value of learning how to feel like that puck was second nature and how to roll your wrist how to huh. keep your head up. Yeah. Um, that in itself um, is such an impact to an overall player's success because of the confidence it gives you. But he, he was at the forefront of bringing that to the sport. Um, and, 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 and I think in this country and, and um, really putting a spotlight on it. And, and then his, his hockey schools will be part of the legacy of, you know, just so many kids were, were at Rell's Turcotte's to Cantley Hockey School and probably <laughs> saw all of us, you know, as, as you know, helping out and as, as assistant coaches and supporting it. But um, I, I think that um, it, it was really just the, just the time. I mean, we're here in New York and we were getting uh, at the epicenter, we were getting decimated during these times. And, um, and there was another young, great, great young player, Jack Bocas who uh, was all a part. It was the LaFontaine kids. It was the Turcotte kids and the Bocuses. Mm. And, um, and Jack just recently passed uh, from cancer and coached uh, for over 30 years with the LA Kings junior program. Um, and I know he's very close with Jeff, one of Jeff's best, Jeff's best friend. And I saw them both out in Anaheim and uh, just recently. So, you know, God bless Jack and and uh, and Ral and we had one more recent that was a coach was Asa Smith, 
Chris Smith was a player we all grew up with. And, you know, they say things happen in threes, I guess, a hat trick. But uh, those were three incredible hockey people that uh, and friends and family that uh, just recently passed in the Michigan area that, that had so much to do with the, the yeah. sport early on. Before before they were, we were winning Olympic gold medals and before all these young players went on to become successful, uh, there was a core um, of families that uh, – that meant a lot to Michigan hockey and then obviously evolved onto bigger and greater things and still continue to give back. Pat, so well said. And, and thanks for your time today talking about a dear friend of yours, a mentor, a coach, and reminding us that we're blessed when we have parents, coaches, and teachers and what they've meant in our lives. And I think our listeners will have a much better idea of Riel Turcotte's legacy, not only in Michigan, but in the United States. Thanks again, Pat. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you. Okay, we're back on the Octopulse podcast with Ted Colfin. Ted, for our listeners, you have another story about the Red Wings and who they might take in the second round or third round. Lots of projection there. There are two local players. If you go to the story from the United States development team, Thomas Bordalo and Dylan Peterson. So those are some names. And Ted, in Wednesday's paper, you have a story on a third round pick last year, Steve Eisenman's first draft, a player by the name of Albin Gru, a 19-year-old Swedish forward who will play in the OHL this year with the Saginaw Spirit. You talked to Sean Horkoff, the team's director of player development. Does this seem like a good move for Gru playing in the OHL? Oh, yeah, a lot more games, Mark. That's the mm-hmm. key. So many more games than playing in the Swedish Junior League. And the North American style suits his game more. He's more of a gritty, combative type. So that'll be good for him. And just go it's playing against his peers. He's only 19. When mm-hmm. you play at Swedish Men's League, you're playing against men who are darn good players. And those, and you're not going to get, if you're 19 years old, you're not going to get much of a role there, not much ice time. So on so many levels, just playing here, it should help the kid a lot. Uh, He's still a ways away. He's a prospect. I mean, who, who knows if he'll ever see the light of day in the NHL, mm-hmm. but this will be a better opportunity. This will be a better opportunity for him. And you know, Ted, I remember watching a player in Saginaw that the Red Wings brought over for one year, Philip Ronick, who has developed well into one of the wings uh, cornerstones uh, down the uh, road on the blue line. He came over for one year and averaged nearly a point per game in Saginaw. So it's good for some players, like you said, who, you know, do you really want them playing against uh, older players and getting less than 10 minutes per game? Or do you want to develop someone like Ronick? And you've seen him develop into a into sure. a top four defenseman. Exactly. I mean, it's a good move. I, it's, it's the premier or one of the premier junior leagues in North America. You're going to see good competition. He's, he'll likely be playing maybe with a, with a Cole Perfetti from Saginaw who's going to be a top pick. So, I mean, there's a lot of potential to really expand his all-around game much more so than he would in that men's league in Sweden where he might be getting yeah. what, 10 minutes of ice time a game, very limited role. So, Ted, that should uh, wrap it up for now. The NHL preseason games, they begin next Tuesday, and then the NHL postseason gets underway with those play-in games a week from Saturday, five games most days in that first round, beginning at noon, 2, 3, 4, 8, and 10.30 at night. And we'll be back later next week to look at those matchups. Until then, stay safe, everyone, and we'll talk to you soon, Ted. Talk to you next week, Mark. 